0: Welcome to Wandering Blurreds, coming to you from the city that never sleeps in the deep, deep, deep B-K-L-Y-N, Brooklyn. Brought to you by the Gifted Sounds Network. Wandering Blurreds, the show that lets those on the go know just where to go when they wander the big blue marble. I'm Miki, just Miki, no more, no less. And this episode, we are wandering back to cool, colorful Colorado for part two of our trek through the land where the columbines grow. This show promises to be jam-packed with fun facts about the Triple C. We'll be taking a close look at the pioneers, politicians, progressives, and pop culture of Colorado. We'll plumb the mysteries of the state capitol, delve deep into the state's dark past, and talk with some Coloradans who spend their lives making the state a cooler place to live. But before we get started, we began our journey through cool colorful Colorado at the Four Corners Monument on the trail of ancient scenic byway and the lands inhabited by the first Coloradans the ancestral Pueblo and Ut Indian people we're going to begin this episode with the pioneers to the area we now know as Colorado which was once Mexico and Kansas territory so the first Europeans in the state were the Spanish and the French French traders were making their way up to the Arkansas River. One of the first Americans to establish a permanent settlement in Colorado was James Beckworth. Now Beckworth was born James Beckwith in 1798 in Fredericksburg City, Virginia. He was the son of an Irish Anglo-Revolutionary War officer and his mulatto slave. When Beckwith was eight, his father moved his mother and their 13 children to Missouri. What's unusual about this situation is that while Beckwith's father still legally owned his mother and siblings till 1824, he acknowledged them as his own and had them educated. Now, shortly after manumission, Beckwith changed the spelling of his name to Beckworth. James worked as an apprentice to a blacksmith But he was unable to find work in St. Louis after that relationship ended with color dynamics of the day being what they were and racism being what it was and actually, frankly, still is. You know, it's funny how sometimes that when your plans go awry, they end up changing the entire course of your life. And this was the case with James Beckwith. The failed career as a blacksmith put him on the path to being one of the most notable pioneers and frontiersmen in the American West. I could spend an entire episode discussing the life and times of James Beckwith, but in the interest of time, I'll limit my comments to his titular contribution to the people of Colorado. In 1824, James Beckwith joined General William Ashley's Rocky Mountain Fur Company as a wrangler. He distinguished himself as a trapper, mountain man, and trader. He traded with the Cheyenne, the Crow, and the Blackfoot people. In 1837, Beckwith left the Rocky Mountain Fur Company to volunteer in the U.S. Army during the Seminole Indian Wars. On his return west in 1842, James and three partners built Fort El Pueblo. Beckwith established the trading post and store at the center of the fort, which became the focal point of what we now call the city of Pueblo. No rents were demanded from occupants of Fort Pueblo. Whiskey was often traded for beaver skins and in exchange for rent. He didn't stay in Pueblo for long. But what's interesting about that whole whiskey exchange is that Pueblo was not the only city west of the Mississippi in which whiskey was a pivotal part and a main part of the economy in the beginnings of the settlement. That is not unusual. And as we go forward, you'll hear a lot more about that. That's going to come up again and again as we talk about cities west of the Mississippi. But I digress. So, as I said, he didn't stay in Pueblo for very long. He eventually settled as a shopkeeper in Denver in 1859. James Beckworth left an enduring legacy in Colorado. A reproduction of Fort El Pueblo now stands on the original site of the fort at 301 North Union Street in Pueblo, Colorado. It's the current home of the El Pueblo History Museum. He's also the namesake of the James P. Beckworth Outdoor Education Center at 700 East 24th Avenue in Five Points, Denver, as well as the Beckworth Outdoors Club. So we talked about Five Points, the Harlem of the West in our previous episode, and it's going to come up again in this episode. So That's just the first of many references to that area because it was so key, particularly in communities of color in Colorado. But it should be noted that James Beckworth wasn't the only colored cowboy. And you'll hear me use the term colored when it is historically correct for the period of time in which a person we're speaking about lived. It may not be your preferred term. Um, If you are a person of color, a person of African descent, but I think it's only respectful to refer to people in the terms that they would have identified with themselves. So that's just a little side note. Don't get all twisted. You know, we've gone by many names over the years. James Beckworth wasn't the only colored cowboy on the frontier to make a name for himself in Colorado. Former slave Nate Love, the legendary Deadwood Dick, moved to Denver in 1889. He married his second wife there and took a job as a Pullman porter with the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. That was an extremely prestigious job for black men around the country during that period of time. And I would say all the way up through the 40s. So Pullman Porters made a lot of money. They got to travel the country. It was a really big deal. And in fact, one of the social clubs that was in Five Points, Denver, was the Pullman Porters Club. Hollywood Hop, James A. Walker, and the Parker Brothers of Cherry Creek were just a few of the thousands of colored cowboys who made their living in the cattle industry from 1865 to 1890. Colorado was home to... Deerfield, about 30 miles southeast of Greeley in Weld County. It's now a ghost town, but it was once a thriving black mining and ranching town founded by Boulder entrepreneur Oliver T. Jackson. It was named Deerfield because the residents proclaimed that the fields were dear to them. So, Deer, D-E-A-R, field. During its heyday, in 1921, the net worth of the town was valued to be about a million dollars, and that's a million dollars flat, not adjusted for inflation. Think of Deerfield as the Rosewood of Colorado, but it wasn't destroyed by racism. No, it was decimated by economic hardship, which was caused by the Great Depression. The community went from a thriving town with 700 residents to in 1910 to only 12 residents in 1940. Many families traveled to Five Points to work and make money to sustain their deer fields, but their efforts were ultimately unsuccessful. In 1998, our friends over at the Black American West Museum worked very hard to get the site registered as a Colorado landmark. Don't think for a minute that the men cornered the market on cow hand or frontier life. Denver socialite Miss Beatrice Boyer learned to rope, ride, wrangle, and break horses on her family's cattle ranch in Coaldale, Colorado. Her father, Bill Boyer, built his fortune managing a lime kiln and manganese mine in Wellsville, Colorado. The tradition of black cowgirls still continues in Colorado. One of the state's most notable blacktresses, Dr. Pam Greer, owns a small horse ranch a few hours outside of Denver, where she cares for two rescue horses. Nina Amos of the Denver chapter of the Buffalo Soldiers Association comes from a long line of black cowgirls, and she continues that legacy by sharing the history of the only black female buffalo soldier at regular historical reenactments and events. James Beckworth was not the only Fredericksburg, Virginia native to pioneer the Colorado territory. Clara Brown, the first woman of African descent to settle in Colorado, was born a slave in Fredericksburg, Virginia as well. Two years after Beckworth on January 1st, 1800. Like Beckworth, Clara and her mother departed Fredericksburg when she was very young. However, This is the point where Clara Brown and James P. Beckworth's lives go on wildly divergent paths. Clara and her mother are sold to a Kentucky tobacco farmer, Ambrose Smith. When she was 18, Clara married a fellow slave named Richard and the two of them had four children together. Their familial life was cut short when her daughter Pauline drowned in 1833. Her life was further thrown into turmoil after the death of her owner two years later. Clara's husband and the remaining children were all placed on the auction block and sold to settle Ambrose Smith's estate. Clara was able to stay in contact with her eldest daughter, Margaret, until she died. However, her remaining family members were sold so many times that they were eventually lost to her. Clara's luck changed once more when she was 56. Her master, George Brown, died. His daughters agreed to pay three-fourths of her auction costs, provided that she paid the remaining one-fourth and they would manumit her as directed in their father's will. Clara bought her freedom and began her migration west to search for her family. In 1858, Clara spent a year in Kansas searching for news of her family to no avail. Thinking that her daughter may have been one of the throngs of people headed west in the Pikes Peak Gold Rush, Clara secured a position as a cook and laundress in Wadsworth's May 1858 company. They made a 700 mile Cherry Creek bound wagon train which departed from Leavenworth, Kansas. The 26-member party arrived in the Cherry Creek settlement a month later. Clara got to Denver and got to work. She was one of two washerwomen in Denver City before 1860, so there was more than enough work for her to do. Clara Brown became known as Aunt Clara. She hosted the first Methodist prayer meetings and Union Sunday School in her cabin. Aunt Clara didn't stay in Denver City for long. Six months after her arrival in the Mile High City, Clara was presented with the opportunity to expand her laundry business in Central City, Colorado. Aunt Clara became a pillar of the community in Central City. In her two-room house on Lawrence Street, Clara laundered clothes, provided meals for the hungry, and medical assistance to anyone in need By all accounts, this woman was absolutely amazing. And by 1865, Aunt Clara's tireless efforts gained her a fortune of $10,000 in assets, which included 16 lots in Denver, seven houses in Central City, and stakes and mines in Boulder, Idaho Springs, and Georgetown, Colorado. That's huge for someone even today. But this was the first black woman to come and make her home in what would be the Anglo-American Colorado. And that's amazing when you consider that this was 1858, 1859. Um, she was also really generous. She was a philanthropist. Aunt Clara was the principal cl- uh, contributor to St. James's Methodist Church on Eureka Street in Central City. And she also provided funds to build the first Catholic church in the city of Denver. Over the years in Colorado, Aunt Clara never stopped searching for her family. Her persistent inquiries yielded the whereabouts of 16 members of her extended family, all of whom she relocated to Colorado at her own expense. Shortly after the Civil War, Clara liquidated most of her assets to finance a trip to Kentucky and Tennessee to continue to search for her daughter, Eliza Jane. She'd received word that her husband died, but no one knew anything about Eliza Jane and her son, Richard. On the request of the Colorado governor, Frederick Pitkin, Clara returned to Kansas at the age of 79 to act as an ambassador for Kansas Exodusters in case you didn't know, I'll just let you know that the Exodusters were people who were formally enslaved, or people who lived south of the Manx and Dixon that weren't formally enslaved, but were subject to black Codes after the Civil War. Um, And these were incredibly oppressive laws that sometimes forbade your, well, all the time, forbade your freedom of transportation. You couldn't just come and go as you pleased. Lynchings were, were rampant in areas where black codes were in effect. Black people actually got the right to vote, but because of black codes, they weren't able to because they had to pass poll tax they had to pay poll tax a lot of times that were extremely expensive or they had to pass reading tests and this was a time where you know many people in America were not literate to say nothing of people that were forbidden to read by and large so basically life really changed after the Civil War during Reconstruction in order to try and attempt to keep the white power structure in place so yeah what happened was uh, groups of people throughout the South, say from like Texas all the way over to Mississippi and Alabama and Virginia, they made their way out to Kansas where they could farmstead. And these people, this group of black people that made their way west during this period of time were called exodusters they made a mass exodus kind of like moses in the book of exodus exodusters um so anyway i digress just to explain that getting back to aunt clara so in 1882 aunt clara got the news she waited nearly 50 years to hear her daughter eliza jane was living in council bluffs iowa This beloved Colorado Denison boarded a train for her final trip away from Denver for her reunion with her daughter. Unfortunately, Aunt Clara's philanthropies and her search to find her family exhausted her savings. The people of Colorado didn't turn their backs on Aunt Clara and her dotage. A friend of hers let her live in a small frame house at 517 Arapahoe Street in Denver, where the Wanda Brown Theater Group now stands society ladies of denver and community leaders of gilpin county raised money to support aunt clara on her return from her council bluffs reunion with her daughter in 1884 a year before her death aunt clara was the first woman admitted to the society of colorado pioneers her daughter eliza jane and her granddaughter cindy attended the lunch where she was honored Her fellow society members gave her a stipend for the remainder of her life and they took care of all of her funeral arrangements. Aunt Clara left an indelible legacy on Colorado and she is honored in memorials throughout the state. A stained glass window commemorating her legacy hangs in this old Supreme Court chamber of the Colorado State Capitol building in Denver. Unfortunately, they've been working on this stained glass window. When we first scheduled this show back, actually it was a couple of years ago, our producer, our senior producer and my co-host Miki, they both went to try and see this window and there was construction. I just got back from Colorado two weeks ago and when I went to the Capitol, it was still under construction. So hopefully when you go, you will be able to see her. As far as I know, she is the only black woman that is so featured and so honored in the Capitol building. So good luck. Hopefully they'll be done with that when you decide to make your visit to Colorado. The Central City Opera House dedicated a chair to the memory of Aunt Clara Brown in the 1930s. In 2003, Gabriel's Daughter, an opera about Aunt Clara Brown's life, debuted in Central City. There's a paid internship in her name available to Colorado students. She was also inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame in 1989. Most recently, in April of 2012, Nigger Hill, and that is exactly what it's called, so I am not bleeping anything out here, um, Nigger Hill in Central City, aka Niggerhead was renamed Aunt Clara Brown Hill by the U.S. Board of Geographic Names. It's located at 9,088 feet in Arapahoe National Forest, 0.7 miles northwest of Central City. Niggerhead, or Nigger Hill, marked the spot that George Smith, a black man who was accused of a robbery and murder, was lynched on February 18th in 1870. Problematic histories are a lot harder to clean than dirty laundry. In fact, New York State didn't get around to changing the names of Nigger Lake, Nigger Road, or Nigger River until 2011. Overall, in spite of the problematic histories, Klansmen, Statesmen, and Jim Crow laws instituted At the turn of the 20th century, Colorado has had a pretty progressive track record and a historically diverse population. Colorado's oldest town, St. Louis, is home to the state's oldest Hispanic population. The St. Louis Valley was also home to the first Japanese Coloradans who arrived between 1861 and 1888. Japanese Coloradan farms Uh, and farmed communities thrived in the San Luis, Greeley, Fort Lupton, and Arkansas River valleys. Sugar beets were a primary crop farmed by this immigrant community during the early years in the state. While a plaque near Blake and 20th Street in Lodo is all that remains of Denver's Chinatown after the Hop Alley Riot of 1880. The Japanese Coloradans who ran businesses in Denver's Little Tokyo after 1908 had a slightly different experience than the Chinese Coloradans who were beaten, ransacked, and burned out during Denver's first race riot on Halloween night, 1880. Denver's early Japanese immigrants lived within communities populated by other minority groups and immigrant populations. I believe that this gave early Japanese Denverites, some protection from the kind of violence that was visited on earlier Chinese enclaves. Japanese and Korean Coloradans were not exempt from the complexities of race and ethnicity in America. In 1908, the Colorado State Federation of Labor formed the Japanese and Korean Exclusion League, which worked to keep Japanese and Korean Coloradans out of unions and covenant neighborhoods just like they did with black people in Five Points. However, as I mentioned in the previous episode, Governor Ralph Carr worked with Japanese clergy to encourage Japanese Americans to move to Colorado during World War II. Now that's pretty progressive, particularly for that time especially when you consider that the federal government imprisoned 7,500 Japanese Americans in Camp Amache in southeastern Colorado between 1942 and 1945. Colorado's second oldest city, Boulder, has also been a bastion of progressive thought. This ancestral home of the Comanche, Arapaho, Sioux, and Cheyenne became a refuge for diverse communities after an Anglo-American settlement in October of 1858. The people of Boulder elected the first black mayor in the state of Colorado in January of 1974. Before moving to Colorado, Penfield W. Tate was Kent State University's first football All-American. He graduated from undergrad as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army and spent 14 years in the armed services before moving to Boulder, Colorado to attend law school at the University of Colorado. Penfield Tate is probably best remembered for his signature handlebar mutton chops and curled mustache. Tate's most enduring legacy is his introduction of the sexual preference amendment to the Boulder Human Rights Ordinance. This amendment, passed by... Boulder City Council a month before Tate became mayor in December of 1973, made it illegal to fire or deny employment to any qualified applicant based on sexual preference. This was the first legislation passed in Colorado that protected the civil rights of LGBT Coloradans. This legislation was not only progressive, but it may have been a little bit too progressive for Boulder rights in 1974. Penfield Tate II was publicly jeered for his sexual preference amendment. He received hate mail and death threats. He narrowly escaped a voter recall before the end of his term of office. However, Tate maintained, quote, the most basic right this country offers is the right for its citizens to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I believe that every governmental body as an affirmative duty to ensure that it takes the necessary steps to provide this right to all of its citizens. End quote. Tate's convictions cost him his reelection bid, and some would say his political career. He never held another public office, although he remained civically active. The Boulder County clerk who issued married licenses to same-sex couples during Tate's mayoral a- administration is often recognized as striking the first blow for LGBT Coloradans, while Tate's role is mentioned as a footnote, if at all. The Pearl Street Mall in Boulder is also an enduring legacy of the Tate administration. His service on the board of directors for the Denver Metro Major League Baseball Stadium district is acknowledged on a plaque in Coors Stadium. Continuing the legacy of Uncle Penfield, I'm told there is a black spiritual retreat hosted in Colorado called Chrysalis, spelled with an X, which provides a safe space for gay men to get away and gather for spiritual healing and respite. Note, I said I'm told. Unfortunately, after my colleague here at the Gifted Sounds Network told me about this wonderful event in June, I wasn't able to find anything on the event. This is a little bit humbling for me as a journalist and historian, because I'm usually able to find anything. I did see this event page once, so I know it's out there. The truth is out there. I just couldn't find it again. This event was just a little too awesome to go without saying or without mention. So I included it in the podcast, although I couldn't find it again, so Hopefully the the chrysalis hasn't turned into a butterfly and you all can find it if you're interested in going once again. That is chrysalis with an X. Speaking of, we absolutely cannot talk about Colorado as a progressive safe space for the LGBTQ community without mentioning Trinidad, Colorado, which was dubbed the sex change capital of the world from the early 1970s to the year 2000, thanks to the efforts of surgeon Dr. Stanley Beaver. Colorado was on the forefront of the women's suffrage movement. The Colorado State Legislature held a referendum in November of 1893, which ratified an amendment to the Colorado Constitution granting women the right to vote. By 1894, Clara Cressingham, Carrie Clyde Hawley, and Frances Clock became the first three women to be elected to a United States legislature. We mentioned in part one of our two-part Colorado episode that the ladies of the Daughters of the American Revolution designed the state flag. By the way, if you were wondering why we went into explaining the design of the Colorado state flag, it's for this reason people in Colorado are some of the most flag-proud people I've ever seen. It's emblazoned on T-shirts, hats, keychains, They wear their Colorado state pride on their flags all over the place. It's on interstate signs. And so I definitely had to mention that besides the fact that the state flag was uh, designed by women who didn't realize it was another flag. And their design actually trumped the previous design. So um, but yeah, that's why we went into that in the depth that we did in the first episode. And I'm not sure if you were wondering, but that clears that up. Anyway, I digress again. The state was a fertile ground for pioneering women with entrepreneurial aspirations. Kathy Williams, the first Negro woman to serve in the U.S. Army, made her home in Trinidad, Colorado, which we mentioned earlier. After serving as a laundress for the 8th Indiana during the Civil War and disguising herself as a man, to enlist. She enlisted for a three-year tour of duty with the 38th infantry of the USCT in 1866. The list of remarkable, free-thinking women who have made their homes in Colorado is huge. This list includes Mylon Albright, the first woman to serve as US Secretary of State, the first woman to get a jockey's license, Anna Lee Allred, temple grandin who is a doctor of animal science you often hear about her creating a new and more um, humane way to lead cattle into a slaughterhouse she's also known for being a disabilities advocate for people with autism politician pat schroeder baby doe tabor and the unsinkable molly brown as well as Cleo Parker Robinson. Now, Cleo Parker Robinson is known for many things, but most exceptionally, um, she is recognized as being the founder of the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Company. She is a native Denverite. She was born and largely bred in Five Points and She took some time out of her busy schedule to talk to Wandering Blurreds about her life, how she came to found the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Company, and what life was like in Five Points. So we'll hear a little bit more about that community from someone who spent a lot of time there growing up. And um, yeah, without further ado, I'll let her tell you the rest. I am so glad to hear from you and so glad that you could do this. I definitely wanted to reach out to you um, for the Colorado episodes because we're doing a two-parter, probably mostly because I'm partial.
1: But <laughs> uh, well, I got tickled that you were interested, but you have a, you have a history of Colorado, oh, right? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and I, I'm not quite sure um i know this much i was like i'm not sure if you taught my mother when she was in school at cu um but oh, yeah. i know that you definitely that that my aunt Pat definitely worked with you um for oh a while. Gosh. yeah <laughs> yeah
1: isn't that wild so yeah, <laughs> yeah probably she was right there with me at cu honey yes indeed
0: because you you went quite, to manual and they were at no East. i
1: actually I actually, I, my father went to Manuel.
0: Oh, that I'm deep. sorry.
1: No, my father went to Manuel. And I, my brothers and sisters went to East. And I ended up going to George Washington. You were George. And I was head girl at George Washington. And that deep. so I was the first, honey, like one of a handful of black students. So it was wow. pretty remarkable that, um, that I would um, become uh, their head girl. And there was a history of um, the, um, the head girl being from a particular family. And so when that didn't happen, I shook it all up. So people remember that forever. So whenever somebody says she went to Mango, she went to East, ooh, the GW people are upset. I tell you, honey, they go, oh no. She was our head girl. I told my husband the other day, I said, you know, it's so deep. I said, we've been given, I mean, you know, over 48 years, almost 50 years, unbelievable awards and medals and all of these things. I said, I said I even got the Kennedy Center Medal for the Arts. I said, but nobody deals with it quite like they did as I was head girl of George Washington. Well, I my dance company... Started with Manual High School students.
0: Okay, yeah, so it
1: started I, with Manual because I taught at Manual. I taught at CU Manual and East, and those dancers in 1970 were the students that came out of those schools, and that's how my company got started throughout all those workshops and classes.
0: Wow. Now, I, as I understand it, you started teaching dance at age 15. i did i know in that wild i'm i I, yeah i was kind of blown away gobsmacked um so tell me how that happened the evolution of of uh miss cleo parker robinson the dancer to the instructor to the founder of the company
1: well you know as you know i was born in five points and so i was exposed to all these amazing artists, very young, mm-hmm. you know, right right when I was born. So I think just being around the energy of and the excellence and the richness of all of this um, certainly was in my spirit. Um, but of course, I didn't live in the Rossonia all those years. I, I was born in the Rossonia, but um, later lived at Kidder Curtis Park and Emerson and all over but East Denver. But I think just coming from a family of artists, my mother was a musician. She played uh, French horn and the San Diego Symphony at the age of 12 as a as a young, you know, um, protege then. And my father was also a, a musician. And he played lots of wonderful instruments, trumpet and um, trombone and then later the saxophone and and he loved singing. They both were singers as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So and my father was a dancer. My daddy loved to dance. And because the Rossonia, had the club downstairs and the apartments upstairs. Daddy would always be, you know, I mean, they had those Saturday night gatherings where people um, came together all the time and danced. So daddy, my growing up was that I was going to dance. I mean, I danced. But I was never encouraged to be a, a dancer. So I think, um, you know, later on, as I was growing up, I just danced naturally. I mean, we just, that's what we did. I <laughs> just think, you know, everybody danced. So uh, when I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I was an athlete, so I had time to the Junior Olympics, and I was a runner, and I threw the um, the discus, and I did all those kinds of things. Wow. And I played basketball. and. So I was a, yeah, I played volleyball, basketball, soccer. I did all those things. So I was a physical child. I loved to move, but I loved music and I I danced all the time. But in junior high and middle school, I started taking classes with a wonderful teacher, uh, Pauline Pauline Holmes. Okay. And then later, Rhoda Gersten. And there became a job that was available through, I think it was the, um, a youth program, a youth program, and the first job was for me to start teaching dance um, in these wonderful centers, so as soon as I got my little self going, I would go and teach classes to children, Mm -hmm. and um, I loved it, and then I had my little driving permit, and I drove everywhere, to Brighton, and Everywhere just to teach dance, and I loved it. I, I mean, I loved it. It really was something. But I um so I studied with Carver de Ballet with Frida Ann and Lillian, and everybody thought that I was Lillian Parker, you know, Cabilla Parker
2: mm-hmm.
1: of of that ballet school. And I said no, 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 um, because I love ballet, but it wasn't me. Okay, you know, and I didn't see anyone of color in any of those experiences. And everything they did was classical. And I loved it because of course I listened to all kinds of music growing up. But it wasn't the balance that I that I knew. I loved jazz. You know, I grew up with that and African and, you know, folklorico and everything. And and in the ballet world they were only, you know, dealing with mostly classical music. So I think just growing up in the spirit of it Mm -hmm. uh, was great. You know, but my story about growing up in Dallas, Texas, uh, kind of guided that
0: as well. We've heard a lot about that Denver-Texas connection. Um, Mm. Large amounts of, uh, large numbers of, of Denverites, particularly Black Denverites coming from Texas and really kind of, leaving their stamp on the city um, so you know it's, it's interesting because you're yet another Denverite who comes from that kind of tradition um, and that it's been oh, yeah. going on for like over a hundred years oh yeah
1: yeah well you know my grandparents well let me go back to my my mother it was from San Diego mm-hmm. um, but my father was from Texarkana Arkansas oh okay and his his parents then we're on that Texas-Arkansas border. So that's where his family's from, Texarkana, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when I was about 10, uh, I went to live with my family in Dallas, Texas. Okay. And that was quite, quite a, um, a milestone in my life. It changed it tremendously, um, mostly because it was really segregated much more than Denver. Denver was segregated as well. But like I said, the Rathonia was a club that, even though it was in a segregated district, people came from everywhere to hear the jazz. So Mm -hmm. it was probably the only hotel where blacks could live, but also where white people came to hear it. Hear great music by, you know, Everybody, mm-hmm. Billy Holiday, and Bessie Smith and Jimmy Smith, everybody, you know, everybody played there. Duke Ellington, Cap Calloway. Yes, so indeed. growing up there, people would come and somehow broke the Jim Crow laws by being there. And then they would go back to their neighborhoods, you know, right. most of the time. So going to Dallas where that that did not exist. It was totally segregated where I lived. So, you know, living with my grandparents who were black and my mother who was white, that was one of the most traumatic experiences I've ever had. And I almost died of um, heart failure, kidney failure, and heart failure. Mm-hmm. So I lived in a hospital there. So that that began my my movement journey mm-hmm. because I think when the doctor said um, that. I would never be normal, that I would have to be bedridden all my life. Somehow, you know, you get a contract with the creator. And it was sort of like, well, if that's going to be the condition, I might as well not be here. So I knew that if I was going to live, I had to move. Mm-hmm. That was just the way, that's the way that was in my spirit, you know. And and I was only, I mean, I was only 11 or Twelve, and then we moved to Denver. Back to Denver, mm-hmm. and um, I was every, I was fortunate to um, start working right at in the Bombay Theater, and I began to sing and dance and do musicals, and that's where my my, my movement career. Where and I was with people who were Miss America and all kinds of folks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Great great artists that came out of the Bombay Theater. But it was segregated. It was segregated at that time. I
2: didn't know that.
1: So, oh yeah, it, uh, only uh, people of color went through the back door. Wow. So that was a um, that was a that was sort of a deep time for me. So uh, uh, from growing up, being born at the Rossonian, then moving to Dallas and having that traumatic experience, and then coming back to Denver and being integrated into a a world of the art in a way that was just phenomenal, um, was quite, quite, a, quite a journey,
0: <laughs> quite a journey. Yes, indeed.
1: What I love is that I was, you know, I choreographed a lot and worked. We were probably the first company of color to work with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. And I remember what was so great is that when we got there, the great Charlie Burrell, the bass player, was always... Um, a part of our production. So if I was doing Carmina Barana in the 70s or if I was doing Aida or Samson and Delilah or whatever, um, Firebird or whatever I was doing, he was always playing Mm -hmm. and he was always connected. And he says, you know, you're like my child. And I never heard him speak about it until the 50th anniversary when we were on stage and um, it was his last, performance with the symphony and he said um he said i want i want i want cleo to stand right next to me he said i want everyone to know that i brought her home from the hospital
2: and and and
1: that's that's right he brought so charlie burrell the great bass player he said because her father was working and my daddy was an actor at that point Uh he was an actor and he and of course he had so many other jobs to keep keep us um, you know afloat and uh, and so and he hated hospitals so Charlie Burrell brought me home and I lived at the Rossonia that's where I was I was born right you know right Right like I wasn't born in the hospital but you know that's where we lived when my mother was pregnant carrying me and um, what was wild is that because it was segregated my mother, being white now, um, nobody lived in the Rosson except for blacks. So my mother being white and pregnant with me, and my mother and father had to go to five different states to get married.
0: Yeah, because of the times. Uh, yeah, that was
1: the, that was the time. Were they able and then, to
0: marry in Colorado, though? Oh, no, no, no. That was why they
1: left, because oh. you couldn't marry in Colorado, couldn't marry in... They went everywhere from Arizona to Wyoming to Texas to um, New Mexico. They finally got married in Mexico and it was a little bit challenging. So I think what was amazing is their love was challenged and um, they loved each other just so deeply and they loved each other through the music because they both were musicians. Mm. Um, they just appreciated um, art and um, music, and and they brought us up that way, right there. Wow. So I was the first child, you know, of four, and then I had other brothers and sisters. We adopted, and I found out I had half brothers and sisters. But the four of us that were born in Denver, I was the only one born at the Rossonian. Wow! And then the you know, isn't that wild? In the part of but, the music. Oh yeah, right up in the music, honey, in the spirit. Yeah. Uh, like the Harlem Renaissance
0: of the West it was it was an extraordinary rich time. So how is the the five points of your youth different from the five points of today?
1: Mm. well I mean way different um I think people come and have no knowledge of it whatsoever. Mm. It, it, that's that's sort of painful yeah but I tell you, I tell you what, people in New York know about it. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. People know about Five Points in New York City. Because I've had wonderful writers like Richard Long, who wrote The Black Traditions in American uh, Dance. Um, He wrote that wonderful book of Black Dance in America. And I said, um, I want you to come to Denver and we live in Five Points. He went, Five Points? Oh, my God. So we talked all about it. He knew everything about Five Points. And I went, wow. And I think it's because during that particular time after World War II, there was a military base here in the Colorado Springs, and people would come to Denver as the big city. Mm-hmm. And and the points would be the place to go. Mm-hmm. And so people like Sammy Davis Jr., and they were in the military. And, you know, so we had... Um, an officer's club. And so that's how they knew about the Rossonian by points. And so they carried it on with them wherever they moved from from Denver, you see. So I think that that was very exciting. So there's a lot of new people. I mean, we all call it gentrification. And the, the, the new folks coming in don't have a sense of it at all. Mm. So I think the difference is, is that we hold a place on the corner a little bit down from five points, just a block or so, where we're on 23rd. Five points is Twenty Six. The old shorter? And we're Right, we're in the, yeah, yes. And the things that we have done in our space, holding up that tradition has they, it's just been so exciting. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's um, not only... Do we have musicians that are you know do live music? But we have we have dance companies come in and, and um, I mean from all over the world and the students that train with us every day. So it's an academy and a year round year round academy. Um, we do outreaches into about forty to fifty schools within the year. Actually, getting closer to 70. Uh, we got about seventy schools we go into wow. in the year. That's a and lot. And so. You know, so I think it is not what it was, but it certainly is the root of what it was.
2: Mm.
1: Because if it wasn't there, we could certainly not be able to do what we're doing today. You know, so, I mean, I've had many, many musicians come in and play and um, create magic with us. But also, I mean, different, different kinds of music. I mean, we do an international summer dance institute so usually if we're doing dance we're doing music most of the time dance if there's dance there's music if there's music there's dance
0: yes indeed
1: yes, uh-huh indeed. so but i do miss that um concentrated mecca of what took place during the you know the late forties that doesn't exist today. And now people are working on opening the Rocktonia again. We, we know our wonderful athletes. Thompson Billups is involved with a developer and they want to, um, they have great plans. So that's exciting, but it's been vacant for many, many years. You know, like I had Joe Bonner's um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Joe Bonner, his grand piano is here with Tommy Chilton. And uh, mm-hmm. so we, we we keep the Grand Piano here. I just did Romeo and Juliet live. I did mm-hmm. Carmen live. So that people can get a sense of the extraordinary local and international talent and artistry that we're building right from the root up. So I, I, mean, I, I think it is a different time, mm-hmm. definitely. But it's also... You know, we're making this a destination, so that people will stop and 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 know that this is a the place they they must come to.
0: Wonderful. So I guess that kind of encompasses my question about the legacy of uh, the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Company and where you all see yourselves in the future of the city. But I guess my last but not least question is what are your favorite places? What have been your favorite places Uh to go in the city that you call home now? Um, You know, the city of your youth.
1: Yes, well, you know, I miss a lot of those places that we used to have at Five Points. Um, But there are a few that are still left. Um, Nothing like when we were there, you know, um, you know, I go to coffee on the point, and um, I, I love that still because we got a little wonderful coffee coffee house that's right there, black owned, and these two young brothers are um, they're they're really amazing. Um, but I but I but I you know I I love um, we, we got a great restaurant on Seventeenth, um, okay, and it's Humboldt. I go there and. Um, I, I love the Mexican food, so we go to Las Alices. We have lots of, um, we lots of, you know, our family is very integrated, honey. We are very international. Uh-huh. So I love uh, Las Alices. Yeah, and then the other is that my own um, dancer, who is a member of, um, she's our associate artistic director. She owns a restaurant called Intersection, and they have wonderful breakfast. Um, and they serve all the way till two, and that's in Northfield. So it's not in this area, but I always love going there because it's a, it's a great place. And we've got just one, I mean, Lodo. Everything Rhino, it's just so much is changing all of the time. <laughs> it's just phenomenal. So it's the place to be. When I host the International Black Dance Conference in Denver, where we have hundreds of people come from all over the world. They absolutely love it. So, and when is so, that? Well, I've been hosting it for 30 years, what? the International Association of Blacks in there. And I've hosted it maybe, I think we're going on five years, five, five different times. Now, we'll have it in Dayton, Ohio,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, in January. It's always in January. We were in LA last year. And we we bring in vendors um, from all over the world, and it's deep, you know. As, as we've grown with so many students and choreographers and dancers, and Debbie Allen was with us last year. Um, we've we've created in our studio. We we made the first um, African American ballet audition that's ever happened for ballerinas. And that happened two years in our, our studio. And then last year we had the first ballet audition for black male ballet dancers. So That's it's pretty radical.
0: Yeah. So that, that actually get, is a place that Wandering Lords may have to check out.
1: Um, oh, yes. It, we have hundreds, yeah. hundreds of people come in and audition for our summer programs because we all offer summer programs, um, with extraordinary artists. And so ours is international and it's been great. I mean, we get hip hop artists and African dancers like Baba Chuck Davis. And, you know, we honored Donald McHale who just passed, who was the first black choreographer on Broadway. Um, You know, this is the education that our culture brings and oftentimes doesn't get um, doesn't get carried the legacy doesn't continue in most of the schools anymore. So just everything we do, we try to make sure that we integrate it into our education program.
0: Yes. That's wonderful.
1: So now we're doing Dancing with the Denver Stars. And we have the governor performing with us August 25th. Wow. That's so deep. And the mayor, the mayor has been a great supporter. And um, so this is how we combine um, our, our civic leaders. With our artists, and um, really make sure make sure that um, we've got this kind of understanding of how we all contribute to um, to a to a great community. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think we're doing some because it is Denver. And it's not it isn't as uh, conservative as many many um, communities. I think we're able to do a lot of things.
0: So, Cleopatra and Robinson is just one of the many dynamic modern women um to grace Colorado. Um, Colorado women have just really they make their their way in this world as as kind of forward thinkers and innovators. In two thousand and nine, former Navy Lieutenant Wanda James became the first, and to date the only black woman in Colorado to own a marijuana dispensary. Both Wanda and her husband are restaurateurs, so her dispensary, Simply Pure, offers a unique selection of cannabis edibles in addition to marijuana. On your next visit to the Mile High City, feel free to stop by and visit this self-described stiletto stoner in her Simply Pure dispensary at 2000 West 32nd Avenue in the Highland neighborhood of Denver. If you've got the munchies after, feel free to wander one block north to James Purple Place of Neo Southern Cuisine. That's Jezebel's at 3301 Tijon Street. Now, it's not a paid promotion, but I thought you might want to uh, sample the the wares and the fare of uh, this particular Colorado black female pioneer. While most denverites believe the unsinkable molly brown a titanic survivor was a denver native she was not she was nonetheless a denver institution she was an activist philanthropist and socialite who helped found the denver women's club she rose from humble beginnings to marry jj brown and together they built an empire as jj rose through the ranks of the mining industry She defied convention by running for office, advocating for worker's rights and pursuing work as an actress. This just wasn't done during her time, not by ladies who were considered in polite society and she most definitely was considered in polite society. Many Denverites also believed that she owned the Brown Palace Hotel. However, little secret, she didn't. She was just one of the hotels many frequent visitors which included all but two U.S. presidents since 1905 and Dwight D. Eisenhower actually used it as his campaign headquarters at one point in time. In fact the hotel has three presidential suites. Elvis and the Beatles also stayed at the Brown Palace Hotel which is reported to be haunted. There is also an apiary at the top of the hotel which is kind of interesting because bees are an international symbol of royalty and hospitality. Now, Colorado was one of the first states to decriminalize marijuana in 1975. Medical marijuana use and sale was approved by Colorado voters in 2000. And in 2012, recreational cannabis use was legalized in the state of Colorado, giving birth to a 996.2 million dollar business in the state as of 2016. visitors to the state can now rest relax and inhale in durango's 170 acre canna camp which is the nation's first all-inclusive cannabis ranch resort where guests can enjoy cannabis yoga thc cooking class and pot bonfires or stay in bud and breakfasts in denver silverton or adagio colorado it's a huge part of the the growth economy in the state of colorado you may be wondering what the colorado state song is it's john denver's rocky mountain high and no it has nothing to do with marijuana um It was inspired by John Denver's move to Aspen. It took him uh, nine months to write, and the FCC actually tried to censor the song by banning it from airplay until John Denver testified before Congress in 1985 about the song's wholesome expression of the peace the songwriter felt in the Rockies. And there is this really calming... um, At least from what I experience, I can only speak for myself, really calming effect you get looking at the Great Divide. I always call it, um, you know, God's country. You get the whole Walt Whitman transcendentalism. Um, When you look at that, it's just huge and breathtaking. But speaking of artists, when we visited Battle Creek, Michigan, we spoke about the Underground Railroad monument that is there on the side of Battle Creek. Well, the artist who created that work of art is Ed Dwight, and he is a Denverite. He um, moved to Denver pretty early on in his career, and I just couldn't resist the opportunity To let you hear a little bit more about why this particular artist decided to make Denver his home, um, what his inspirations were, and how he came to be a monument creator. So he shared a little bit of that with us here at Wandering Blurreds he talked about his experiences coming to Denver many people may not know this about him but Mr. Dwight was also the first trained black astronaut he talks a little bit about that experience and just what social life was like in Denver and Five Points so we'll give you an opportunity to listen to his take on the Mile High City and uh, cool colorful Colorado We were engaged by um, your piece out in your monument, actually, in Battle Creek. And when I saw that you were a Denver artist, a Colorado artist, I was like, oh, definitely. When we do the episode on Colorado, let's get in touch with them. So uh, once again, thank you. Um, Yeah. Well, here's the thing. And this is this is. My my big question for you, and what I found most intriguing is that you know you are America's first trained black astronaut. What inspired you to make the transition from aeronautical engineer to fine artist and monument maker?
3: Uh, well, that's a interesting too. I don't know whether you have enough time for it, but I'll I'll make it I'll make it quick. No, I I I started doing art before I could walk, and I I. Uh, I, I did art all through. I was a class artist or a school artist, so all through elementary and high school. And opened up a sign shop when I was 14. And I had uh, lived uh, from Kansas City, Kansas. And I had all the churches and uh, and the stores all all doing doing business and doing their signs. And I and out of high school, I had uh, uh, I had won the first three ribbons in the Kansas State. Um, uh, uh, art, you know, uh, oil, you know, all painting contest uh, for the whole state of Kansas. I had won the first three ribbons, and and uh, and so some uh, mentors of mine took that information to the Kansas City Art Institute, and I got a degree. I mean, I was offered uh, a scholarship at Kansas City Art Institute, you know, based on, uh, on you know, and, the, and I, everything was going fine, and I was like, going to go to art school. <laughs> My dad sits, sits me down and said, What are you going to do for real? And, uh, and I said, I'm going to be an artist for real. And he said, No, you're not. Uh, and he said, I'm not going to take care of you the rest of your life, and you're going to engineering school. And I, I, I thought him meant a train engineer, you know, like mm-hmm. driving a train. Right. And I said, I, said, I don't want to drive any train, dude, but what's, I mean, what's <laughs> going on with that? He said, What are you talking about? He said, You know, and, and you know, And I said, you're going to to be an engineer. Just so, so take that art, forget about it. And uh, and I I I listened to him for a while. He made a deal with me. So what I want you to do, take some time, and and I want you to find me any artist anywhere in the world that's making any money. And of course, I didn't even know where to look. You know, you know. And so, but I thought I did start asking around a little bit. and I couldn't get any answer. There was no internet in those days, and I couldn't get any answers. So I just say, you know, maybe the guy's right. Uh, and uh, and in the meantime, I, I lived out in the country, and and my our little family uh, compound was right next to Fairfax Airport. Okay. And I and I had been going to the airport there for since I was could walk, every day, and I was cleaning out airplanes for money and hanging out with pilots and doing all that kind of stuff and never, ever, ever thinking that I would ever, you know, be a pilot or anything like that. That just didn't occur to me at the time until later. And I uh, had been, uh, <clears throat> because of that, I had been taking some secret courses. I got a library card when I was four, and I lived in the library when I wasn't at the airport. And I uh, found a bunch of manuals, uh, training manuals on Army Air Corps training, how to train pilots. And I was taking those at home, and I never associated that with a career. I was taking them home and uh, studying these books and taking the tests at the end of each chapter. And you know, and, and later on, I when I found out they were letting blacks fly uh, airplanes, I applied for pilot training. But in the meantime, I had enrolled for engineering in engineering school, and I was I was pursuing a degree in engineering. Mm. And I, uh, you know, because of my dad, and then I, I applied for pilot training, and they said not only yes, but heck yes. <laughs> and the next thing you know, I'm um, pursuing a, a degree in engineering, and I got accepted for pilot training in the Air Force. Wow. And so, and so I left. Uh, I finished that two-year stint in junior college, and I went in the Air Force, and the Air Force paid for the rest of my engineering degree. And uh, that's how it was in- that's the switch over from 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 being an artist uh, to, to to flying jets and being an engineer.
0: Ah, okay. I was I was curious about that because they seem like very different dis- disciplines. Um, well, not, well, they're not
3: well, they're not really uh, because uh, um, um, a lot of the guys in the space program were were very accomplished artists, and this really? is a matter of. Uh, yeah, as uh, a matter of cross brain training, we doing astronaut training. There's a whole bunch of cross brain, so your brains get battled. Most people are born and they live in one brain, either the left brain or the right brain. And in order to secure, uh, to, to keep your creativity up, they they train you to, uh, to do cross brain activity, so that you're uh, equally adept at creating things as well as uh, the organizing and managing things. And so, uh, so, as a result of that, it wasn't it wasn't unusual at all. Uh, matter of fact, Thomas Bean, after he uh, uh, he got out of the space program and started uh, started painting, and if uh, if you go to the internet and and put astronaut artists, and and it'll, it'll just go on and on for page after page after page. Well, really? Almost every one of the Russians were also artists. Every one of the Russian astronauts were also very accomplished artists.
0: Wow, I had no idea. You learn something new every day. (laughs) Wow, so that's how you came. Well, art first is the primary passion, and then aerospace engineering, and then art again. Yeah,
3: well, you know, after, after, uh, you know, I was disappointed uh, because I never flew in space. I mean, did a lot of training. I got to come to train, and I was just waiting for a space mission. Uh, and I, I was disappointed because of the uh, and I don't I mean I didn't carry it around like a weight or anything uh, my disappointment I buried it but I, but I was disappointed because I, once I got there the whole idea of can you do it uh, enters your head can you complete this can you do it and mm-hmm. and and if the mount was so high that I after I got out of the you know the kind of the basic training of astronaut stuff. I mean, you know, would I be scared to death to get on the end of a rocket and go into space? And the answer was no, uh, because once you're trained, uh, then you think, then okay, I'm trained, I can do this. And then once you get to the point where you know you can do something and can excel at it, uh, then that's where the disappointment comes in if you can't if you can't get it done because of political reasons. And that's what happened to me; it was all political.
0: Yeah. I was
3: I was there too early.
0: You're ahead of your time. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're a native kansan yeah what was it i noticed that there are even the people who traveled from leavenworth to Mm. what was saint charles to Mm. found denver as a city came from kansas there's a lot of kansas to colorado (laughs) like literally even my family kansas to colorado what Uh made you come to colorado and call at your home,
3: well, you know, uh, they. With, with my I first came to Colorado in 1951, and then the process of the Air Force uh, giving me a test to see whether I could go, be a pilot in 1951, when I was in Colorado, they sent me to Denver mm. uh, to uh, to Lowry Air Force Base, which was the testing center for the Air Force. And, and I'm from kansas and 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 the, we got in at night at nine o'clock at night on the train they took us out to these barracks with, with the Lara Air Force Base. I was on the second floor of these barracks, and I got up the next day and I saw my first mountain I didn't know they i, I didn't know they made mountains, <laughs> yes indeed. <laughs> I looked out and said, like, "What in the world you got to be kidding me." <laughs> So, and so I couldn't wait to the, the and from a distance they don't look so high until you get in them, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And and then um, and, and I and, and my buddy, my uh, my fellow black pilot that went through training all the way with me, Bobby Shelton, was from Denver. Mm-hmm. And so uh, all between every training and all our vacations, I always had a car because I bought my first car when I was fourteen years old. So. Uh, in in the training you can't have a car, but when you get to be upper class you can have a car. And 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 we were traveling all over the country going through training. And and I'd have I'd take him to Denver first,
2: mm-hmm.
3: no matter where we were, and drop him off. And then I'd go back to Denver and pick him up. In the meantime, we would go up in the mountains and climb Mount Evans and and do all these things like that, you know. And, and uh, so uh, and so I I kind of fell in love with Denver. And then when I got out. Of the military uh, uh uh denver was the place i wanted to go because i uh, i was skiing and, uh, and all that kind of stuff i had learned how to ski and so i said you know this is it uh, our first black lieutenant governor uh, george brown was also from kansas he migrated out from kansas and he became our first black lieutenant governor here
0: yeah there's definitely there's a long history mm-hmm. i was surprised to discover and just doing research not only for the show but prior to the show about you know what was it that drew people there particularly this large and thriving black community we weren't the only community of color there but like Uh what made them come there there's um a deep connection of people coming from a georgia and well, or I should say maybe be Georgia, but yeah, Georgia and Kansas, large groups right. of people uh-huh. coming and settling well, and, in and, Denver. And,
3: and, you know, in Texas as well. But uh, a funny, it's funny you should say that because uh, uh, I got into art when I was forty-two years old. I, was, I had moved to Denver. I had five big businesses here. I had one of the largest construct, one of the larger construction companies here. Hmm. I had gone to work for IBM when I first got out of the service and. And IBM actually got me back into, into doing art uh, because they, I was wearing these flashy clothes to work and I wasn't supposed to be wearing flashy clothes. <laughs> and I was only, I was only black in, in the marketing department there. And, and, and I was you know, with my background in engineering. I was assistant engineer and marketer. And uh, and they called me in, but my boss called me in and said, you're wearing all these fancy clothes, which we don't like, by the way. But, you know, you look like you have a sense of color. Uh, so we want you to decorate our building. We just bought a new building. and We want you to decorate it. And he said, "We're not going to pay you any more money, but you you get it done, uh, and you pick out the carpet and the, and the walls and whatever you know." And so I, I took it on as a side deal. And then at the end of this, they wanted some art in it, and I went out and I kept bringing his art in from all these galleries around and far away as Chicago and Texas. And they kept turning it down, no. so I got to I got together with my kids, and I drew down 200 of IBM's manuals, and me and my kids sat down and made uh, 30 huge collages with IBM's uh, with IBM's brochures, and I painted these uh, painting fields, and and they're, and and their uh, <laughs> what IBM did came through the painting. And I framed him and took them down there, and they says, "Oh my God, this is what we're looking for." That's
0: so, awesome. That's fantastic. That's Actually, crazy. I'm really impressed.
3: It's Kind of crazy, but it's, that's what I did. But I mean, but to go to your other point, when uh, when George got to be the first black lieutenant governor, uh, he, uh, I wasn't doing figurative art. I was doing uh, abstract art. Okay. And uh, George commissioned. He said, "Well, I want you to do a sculpture of me." That's going into the Capitol building, and I said, "George, I don't model. I just weld things together." And he says, "You you're gonna go down." And he said, "You're going to be one of the greatest sculptures that ever lived." Uh, and, and so you got to stop what you're doing. You go to the library and get a book and teach yourself how to sculpt because you're going to do this sculpture. And I got a big pl- I got big plans for you. Wow! And he gave me he gave me a commission from the state of Colorado. He says, "What well, we want to know, why did blacks come to Colorado?" And we do a series of art—you pick it, sculpture or paintings. Why did Black people come to Colorado? Wow. And, uh, yeah, and that's that's how I got started.
0: So, talk about that. What did you find? Because you had to depict what brought us there. I know in Kansas, many of the the Black people that have been there for more than a generation or two are are actually the children and descendants of exodusters you know, who Mm -hmm. came because of, of course, burning Kansas, it being a free state, and, you know, that idea getting basically ingrained and ensconced in the the hearts and minds of, you know, people who were living in Reconstruction, and instead of going with a great migration up to the Northeast, you know, these people left before, and they became exodusters. So what was it that you found about blacks coming to Colorado?
3: Well, you know, it it turns out that... uh, uh, you know, you know, you know, you know. Denver was a frontier state, obviously, uh, and it was because it was a free state. Uh, it attracted a lot of escaped slaves. Uh, Barney Ford, one of my, one of our most renowned, came here on the Underground Railroad. His dad was white, and Barney Ford built the first high-rise building in downtown Denver. He became wealthy. Uh, it started out; he had a barbershop, and he mm-hmm. started out uh, 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 doing a, a, a tonsorial, they called it. For, for miners in the mountains, and so he stopped taking money from them and wanted shares in their in their mines. He became very wealthy, built a, a huge mansion in 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 in, in, uh, in Chesmer Park here. And Clara Brown came here way back in the 1830s. Um, her family was from Virginia. They got sold. Uh, they shipped them to St. Louis. They got sold. Her family was broken up. She got to be a cook on a wagon train, and she ended up here. Did the same thing he did to move to Central City and start washing these guys' clothes, their miners' clothes. Yeah, she and was he, in that he, first
0: it, Leavenworth party. She's actually yeah. a part of a big part of our second part B of the right. episode. Right. Yeah.
3: And, and so anyway, I uh, built. I mean, I, I went through the whole thing. Uh, uh, uh but Jim Beckworth and I. Mm-hmm. I, I, went, I went through the black jockeys. I went through the, uh, the black cowboys. I, I went through every possible. Uh, deal because we had a, we had a black town that's just north of Boulder there that was uh, which uh, kind of was the center part of the of the black cowboy black rodeos uh, system here in Colorado, uh our our our, our in, uh, in Boulder County our our first uh, sheriff <laughs> black sheriff was there from from the south so it went on it it I started off, he commissioned me to do a few I ended up with seventy bronzes in that in that in that whole Series that uh, Park Service, we traveled all around the country for about five years with it. Wow, and,
0: I'm impressed.
3: Yeah, and so I was, anyway, I'd, I, I I covered everything. Everybody that uh, 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 Mary Fields, she was a black woman, big large black woman, that carried a rifle all the time, and you know, and, you know, and she was a shotgun on stagecoaches, uh, you know, that protected the stagecoaches from the Indians and rustlers and stuff, you know. That's so awesome. it 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 went on forever. That's I ended up I, I ended up going to DU. I stopped what I was doing. And I took what what George asked me to do, and I found out uh, after I started doing these sculptures, I didn't know really know anything about art, and 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 I took his word. I was I was had five companies at the time. George asked me to do this,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and so I stopped every. I sold everything. I had five restaurants. I sold everything, and I went at the age of forty-two. I went back to college and got a degree in sculpture. <laughs> Inspiring, Yeah, and I ran the sculpture department for three years.
0: Wow. Yeah. So. You you were definitely not a person that's a one to sit back on on rest on laurels because you certainly had enough <laughs> where you could have done that before you were forty two, but yeah. that you're constantly reinventing and constantly contributing. Yeah. You know yeah. that's amazing. So yeah. I guess like my next question. Uh would be this. Um, You've created this over 100 works of public art. What role do you see your work playing in preserving the history, um, Uh preserving history for future generations?
3: Well, you know, uh, it's really interesting because up to now, uh, I was was the only black guy out on on the memorial marketplace. I mean, there are a few that did one also, or maybe they've done two or three, but I've done 128 memorials. Around the country about about Black history and and since uh, you know because uh, you know I didn't know I was George uh, got me into black I, before when I was 42 years old and I started talking to George our first lieutenant governor I was I thought I was a white boy walking around with brown skin and and because he he asked me he told me all these stories about Black history and stuff and I and I didn't know what the heck he was talking about I went to white schools all the way through. So I had no idea what he was talking about, and I'm 42. And he asked me had I ever heard of Harriet Tubman, and I said, No. What is she? Who is she? What does she do? Wow. And and then he asked me about Frederick Douglass, and he went right down the list, (laughs) and I had never heard any of these people. Wow. I I, I had heard of Dr. King. I didn't know what his story was either, but I had heard of him. (laughs) And so I had to learn all this stuff from. so George got me 16 books on slavery and all these wonderful things that black people have done. He made me, i didn't make me read them, I read them anyway. And and I was very disappointed at what I had missed, mm. uh, you know, because I grew up in my 40s and I really had no idea what while these people were making all these noise and, and picketing and doing all these sit-ins and I'm going, what's up with that? You know, why are these people doing this? Uh, you know, and that sounds crazy, but... Uh, no, uh,
0: it's if you're familiar with enough people that are in areas where there aren't huge concentrations of, of right, black people, right, their right, experience right. is extremely different. Like, my yeah. grandmother was from Emporia, Kansas, and when I talked mm-hmm. to her about race relations back then, awareness, even things like the the Great Depression, when I used to talk to her, she was... What was the big deal?
3: Like... Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it's uh-huh. not... Uh-huh.
0: It's not foreign to me, but other people I think um are more accustomed to seeing the black community and the black experience as a monolith. And right. so that particular particular part of the experience falls outside of that monolith. So right. it's good to I'm glad but, you but, articulated that.
3: Yeah, well I you know you know, to give you you know, to answer to your the the, the the question I don't know what I answered properly, but uh but I I, I give you a perfect example and my emails reflect all this. Uh, I, I did a huge memorial in the Capitol grounds in in, in Columbia, South Carolina, mm-hmm. a- and there was a gentleman. that was uh, I had given given my presentation for the memorial to a joint session of the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. He asked me to up to his office uh, after I made my presentation, and just ran me over the coals. He said, "Don't you bring anything down there that's going to make us mad." He says, "Our colors down here are really happy. I don't want them upset." And uh, you know, and he, t- he gave me all, he gave me this lecture about what I shouldn't do. In designing this memorial and, and you know and, uh, and i I'd, he and I became friendly little later on do it to another uh, but anyway, where we're, I'm putting the memorial up and he he could see it out of his office in the Capitol and we were just I had all the panels up I went to lunch and this guy had comes down and he had looked at every one of these panels while I was gone and he came up to me and he put his arm around me and he says can we talk I said, well, certainly. And we walked around the campus. He's got about 6'4". I'm a little bit. I'm about 5'4". I'm a little bitty guy. And we walked around the campus, and he pointed to every Confederate soldier on that campus and told why the statue was there and everything, you know. We got back to the memorial, and he stood in front of the education panel, and he says to me, he says, Mr. Wright, i got to tell you, I used to be the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan here in South Carolina.
2: Whoa.
3: I ran for public office in one. And I'm standing in front of his education panel. He says, you know, you could not have convinced me that we should spend one nickel training a colored man. That what? would be the biggest waste of money, you know. He says, but while you were gone, I went through every one of these panels. And do you know what? I have never looked through at life through a black man's eyes before. Wow. And the man, the man six foot four, Vern Smith, he started crying, and he reached in his pocket and he gave me a check for ten thousand dollars. He said, "I'm sure you got some expenses that you that are not covered," and walked away. Wow! And so that told me, uh, and with with my email, that <clears throat> this stuff does work, and it changes changes people's minds about a lot of things,
0: moves their hearts,
3: and and and, and, uh, and if I could. Uh, through, the, through 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 visualizing, see, because they never they have stuff in their brains about what black people are all about, but they they don't see it. And, mm-hmm. and and I have slavery panels. I got them doing labor. I got I got all these panels of black people doing hard things and being treated very shabbily. Mm-hmm. And, and and when you when they can see that visually, it changes. It just uh, my emails. Uh, I've done. I don't know how many doctors uh advisors to PhDs that are using my memorials as their thesis subject. <laughs> and, uh, so it it it's, it's a lot of feedback for me but to answer your question uh th- th- I mean they do work w- w- what I am against uh is is doing these abstract uh, memorials mm. that, that that where you got inter- you got to figure it out yourself and interpret what it means.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and so all all, all of my uh, all my memorials are very descriptive, and, and I tie uh, a, a, a vis a visual presentation in with panels uh, for for a textual presentation, and they walk away from there just knowing, my God, I didn't know that kind of stuff, you know. So.
0: Wow, but yeah, I, I know when I just personally looking at it. Uh-huh. The the first memorial of yours that I that I knew was yours that I saw was uh-huh. very moved. Um, right. So I, I just wanted to to ask you how how you what your take on on history and art and right. monuments right. and art was, yeah. but that that definitely says it all. Um, yeah. So where should people go to see your work on a visit well, to Colorado?
3: Yeah, well, I, I got I got them all pr- pr- uh, pr- pretty much. Not a lot in the west. Uh, most of my stuff is in, in the east, and the and the Midwest, and the South.
0: Now, your workshop is that open to the public, or are there grounds around the workshop that people can visit?
3: Well, I I have a thirty thousand square foot studio.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> I, I pretty don't. big. <laughs> 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 that's pretty huge. <laughs>
3: I got I got a huge campus with 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 you know with several buildings on it, and uh, it's huge. Uh, uh, you know, with the high ceilings, and and the, and the, and the foundry is here. We actually cast the bronzes here. So, we, and as a matter of fact, I just uh, uh, last week I had a tour from Kansas. This weekend, I had a tour from
0: Michigan, and they actually come here
3: on buses to tour my studio.
0: Okay, well, tell us, let our, view, yeah. our listeners know where to come and visit you. Where are you located exactly? Yeah,
3: yeah, I'm in Northeast Denver, thirty-eight twenty-four Dahlia Street in Northeast Denver. And uh, and and one of my big memorials is in City Park, the the largest memorial to Dr. King outside of Washington D.C. is in Denver. It's in City Park here in Denver. Uh-huh. And, uh And uh, and I, I I put that up in, 19, in 2008, but uh-huh. but that's also a visitor center. With Greyhound bus, I had to stop the Greyhound people from coming here because they they come here and wouldn't leave.
2: And, and you I need to work.
3: I, I had couldn't get any work done. No, I would have to kick them out. They they go they go tell the bus driver come back and pick us up at four. Oh, <laughs> no no, uh-huh. no no Get get out
2: of here! It's like I have work
0: to do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, like it's no, nice to I have you as a visit, but you need to keep moving.
3: <laughs> no no no! I got pictures in statuary for 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 a lot of the memorials that I've done. You know what I mean? So you can they can walk around and see the, some of the stuff I've done and see see the work in progress and. You know, and I got I got a huge gallery here with about sixty to seventy bronzes in this gallery here. Wow! Uh, You know, and so it's really gigantic. And uh, like I say, they come here and they won't leave. (laughs) Uh, You know, so I got I got a problem with that. That's no good. That's no good.
0: (laughs) Oh goodness gracious! So Colorado is your adopted home. You were definitely, I would call you a Denverite. I know you're Kansas Mm -hmm. Kansas native, Mm -hmm. but you were a Denverite. Um, Mm -hmm. So where are your favorite places to eat, spend time, hang out? I know you mentioned you're a skier. A lot of people aren't aware that there are quite a lot of black skiers out there. But what is it that you like to do in in Colorado? Why do you love Denver and where do you eat?
3: well, you know, sad, this is really, really sad, but to tell you the truth, uh, uh, since, I, you know, since I first came here in 1951, I've seen the evolution of the black community here in Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and when I got here uh, uh, in '51, our main drag through town in Colorado Boulevard was a two-lane road which was, you know, with trees on either side of the road. Now it's eight lanes wide.
0: That's right. <laughs> and,
3: and, 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 you know, and, and so I've, I've watched it. That was a time uh, w- w- down by Platte River when the slaves first came. That's where they lived. And then they, they allowed them up to York Street, and that was a cutoff line. You couldn't move east of York. Then finally they broke that uh, street barrier and got to Colorado Boulevard, and you couldn't live east of Colorado Boulevard, uh, you know. And, and so in and the meantime, there was quite flight, naturally, because all – all these neighborhoods were occupied by white people, and so uh, and so the, and it, the, the message was get out of, get out of here because the blacks are coming. And so the white people just left. He they left their houses and some just with mortgages and everything else just walked out. And wow. the black people came in and took you know. Finally, we got across Colorado Boulevard, uh, and, you know, and now and then once we moved uh, past Colorado Boulevard. They, uh, the Mexicans, the Hispanics, started moving into the vacuum left downtown. But now, when by the time I got here in '60, 60, '61, uh, all uh, there were 60,000 blacks in the whole state of Colorado when I got here
2: hmm. in
3: '61. 60, you know, and you know, you got 60,000 blacks in a couple blocks of Baltimore. You know, <laughs> so, and so, and so we all lived in one place, Park Hill, and you couldn't live anyplace else. Uh, there was an a, a east-west barrier, so you couldn't go south of that. And, uh, and so, as a matter of fact, I broke the color line by moving on to Montview Boulevard after I got here. Because wow. I was the first black to move south of, uh, of Montview. And, and I, I bought the first house on Montview Boulevard. And I'm still the only black to live on Montview Boulevard. But when, when they opened the, uh, Aurora and the southeast, blacks fled. And we lost the, our base. We lost our political base. We lost our social base. We lost our cultural base because they, uh, the ones that had money uh, and little money and middle, middle, middle class, they moved way, way south, uh, down south of Denver, and they could live with the white people. You know right. what I mean? So,
2: okay.
3: so our, our our ski club went all the, 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 the hell. Uh, everything that we had a party, and all you had to do was ring a bell, and everybody would be there. And, and now uh it's so dispersed that uh you know that the politics have changed and so I don't really spend a lot of time here it makes the law search I don't spend a lot of time here I work here
2: mm-hmm. but I,
3: I spend most of my time on the road and, and it's it's kind of sad so we don't there are no restaurants for us to go to I mean where we would go to a black restaurant or anything like that you know it, it just that, that doesn't exist anymore like it used to you know so I, and, and there's no social in the very few social gatherings, you
0: know. So. I know that for me, when I found out the Daddy Bruce Randolphs clothes, that was a real, that was a real kind of like resounding wake-up call right. that there was a big, yep. huge shift cultural yeah, shift. And, you know,
3: you know, uh, yeah, and, and it hasn't been replaced, and that's what is more interesting about it. You know, and uh, uh, you know, I had a chain of barbecue rib restaurants, and I, I was you did in my rest- Huh?
0: You did? What well, I had? Yeah. I'm sorry, I did not know.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I had five barbecue rib restaurants here in town. It was called the Rib Cage. Okay. Uh, uh and, and see, because there were a lot. See, Daddy Bruce didn't have any place to sit down. It was a takeout place. You go in there in that's the right. and that's right. You take it, it and you go uh, right. You know, and, and so one of the issues I had was that, that we, we didn't have any barbecue where you go sit down and eat. So I opened up five restaurants. Wow. Here in town, and uh, and I've sold barbecue for many years here, and um, uh, and I I got the right recipe. That was kind of kind of the Kansas City barbecue because I'm from Kansas City.
0: Right, right. So, that dry so, rub. So, yeah, 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 yeah.
3: And I and I brought the recipes and I brought the way to cook it and everything from Kansas City. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, so, so so anyway, you know, like like I said, our culture base, even our political base, we can't. We uh, we we don't have a black politician in this town that uh, has any of the interests of the black community at all anymore because uh, because they uh, they uh, you know they live around white people and they're new here know nothing about the history of this town mm-hmm. and so uh, they uh, they don't understand this idea of you know that that there are black interests there are still oh, black interests uh, uh, you know that you gotta Maintain because the laws are constantly being passed that that don't treat blacks and browns and women right. You know what I mean, and uh, uh, and 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 so that sometimes you got to sit down and train them that you know this is how you do this.
0: You know, it's uh, you it's know. interesting that you brought up a little earlier something that um, I was just speaking to my um, executive producer, and I said, you know, we we recorded most of episode one a few weeks ago, and I said, you know, I mentioned the black social clubs and that you know at one time there were over 50 um Uh black social clubs in denver particularly you know a lot of them that were based in in five points i said and i kind of Mm -hmm. spoke about in a really academic way i kind of glossed through it and i said but in a way those were a real power base like you mentioned you know, when I asked you about my uncle, the first thing you mentioned, oh, yeah, I'm in the boulet And all of those were social clubs that really mm-hmm. kind of were a nexus for our community, I feel like, in some ways. And well, by the time 2005, I know it come around, um, mm-hmm. you stopped hearing really about most of them every once in a while. Right. right. Like, how do you think and, and being there since 51? uh uh-huh. I'm sure you were a member of at least one or two, if not more. And, well, and what you do know, you think? You know, how it, has that activity changed? You know, you know, you know, well, you know, you know, what's really crazy about this? Mm.
3: Uh, 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 I have people in various parts of the country, uh, and the, and these the are men's uh, clubs around in DC and Chicago, and you know, and these guys have discussions and arguments about. Whether Ed Dwight was a Kappa, was an Alpha, or an Omega, really? Uh, yeah, and they and they make hundred dollar bets on it. He, you know, and I never joined any of these clubs. <laughs> what oh, the white people always do. I, <laughs> I never, I never played the. I don't know what they were.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
3: I never played anything, and so here I am. Uh, about five years ago. Uh, I'm uh, you know I'll be eighty five in a couple months, okay uh-huh. uh, five years ago, the Boule came up to me and said, We want you to join the Boule and I said, What the heck can I do in the boule at eighty years old? <laughs> what can I offer well well, it turned out that I had been given donating to the boule for fifteen years. I've been giving them art for their oh, auction, uh-huh. so some of these guys got together. And said, Dwight is giving this this seven eight hundred dollars stuff. Mm-hmm. We want that twenty thousand that forty thousand dollars
0: stuff. Okay. Uh, you know,
3: and, and they wanted me to give them my forty
0: thousand dollars sculptures. Oh right? no no no! Oh wait, let me and, stop! And, and, I'm editorializing. And so and so and so the the there's
3: solutions to this problem. I said, man, I ain't coming across with no thirty five forty thousand dollars piece <laughs> to give you to raise no money. And so. The guy, said, the guy said why don't we get him in the
0: club and then, and then they have to give him to us then then we'll pressure and be like listen so brother dwight <laughs> and so, we saw and that piece over there in the workshop wait,
3: wait, wait a minute it started a riot from the national in in atlanta and D- in dc it was a riot what? Just, we don't let no 80 year old guy get in the moonlight oh stop it for real no like, i'm serious what? and david it was a huge Fight because they they passed a law uh, internal uh, law that no they, they wanted nobody over thirty five
2: in, in the ballet. Yeah, I had
3: yeah. no idea. Yes, and then and then if 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 the guy has if he was 30, over thirty five and had special concept, I mean special characteristics about him, then then they could move it up to fifty. But the guy had to what? bring some stuff to the table, right? <laughs> and so they had this argument. And they had to vote to let Ed White in the boule.
0: What? <laughs> that is really honestly, and it's funny because you pointed that out, and I, of course, was like, well, let's talk about this. And you know, like, yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my
3: goodness. Wow. Yeah. And so, and so wait a minute. They had insult to injury. For all these Boulay brothers that have been in there for years, uh-huh. that have been climbing mountains, building apartments, building worlds, and stuff like that, uh, uh, four or five months ago, I was on the cover of the Boulay Journal.
0: All right, now, <laughs> and so, <laughs>
3: and so, all these old guys
0: got mad as hell. They said, what? What the hell does that little dude do to get on the you cover? You've built monuments. <laughs> Listen, your monuments, their grandkids will be visiting someplace in Minnesota or Michigan or Baltimore or Atlanta, and they'll see your monument, and they'll see Ed Dwight, and they'll be like, I think I saw that. I, that, that man, I saw him on the cover of my granddaddy's boulet magazine, and that's why you're on the cover of the granddaddy's boulet magazine. <laughs> that right there. <laughs> Oh boy oh goodness gracious yeah so so
3: so so anyway there's a lot of stories there about you know about uh you know my association with the black community I, I, but the 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 dirty little secret
2: mm-hmm.
3: is that i i caught more hell from the black community uh in the astronaut thing than i did from the white community in the astronaut hello pursuit? Really? I wasn't. I wasn't black enough. I wasn't tall enough. I was a Catholic. My mother looked like she was white. I mean, it went on forever. I got. I got really? letters. I got. I was getting fifteen hundred letters a week. Uh, you know, and, and 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 I was traveling. I made twenty five hundred speeches when I was in the space program.
2: Okay? Uh
3: huh. And so I'm going from town to town and making up to. Uh, my my biggest day was I did seventeen speeches in in Washington D.C. Starting at five o'clock in the morning and going on the stage at 12:30 that that particular night, I had 17 appearances in the Washington D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, some of them were obviously fast and quick to get that many in, but I was a chaperone and I would just go, go on stage and do my thing and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh-huh. And so I was I was able and and I caught hell from the NAACP because I wasn't black enough. I didn't I wasn't angry enough. Got to be angry. <laughs> I, I, I was catching hell from the Urban League because I wasn't. I wasn't angry enough, and I got to call the white people out, and I got to do all these things, as this black astronaut guy, Uh, you know, and I had to carry that torch. And here I was, a scientist, and talking about going into space, and they're talking about political issues about race. Uh
2: Yes.
3: And I didn't know anything, you know, like I told you before. I I, I didn't know what they were talking about.
0: Because it wasn't in your experience.
3: Yeah, and I was, yeah, I mean, I had nothing... I, okay, the, the only thing I could talk to, the, the, speak to the issues of the challenges of the training and the challenges of how I got there and all these kind of things, that's basically what I had, could talk about. That's all the, the Air Force and the Pentagon wanted me to talk about. They didn't want me to talk about race.
2: Right. They didn't want
3: me to talk about progress. They, you know, and when I did get out on the edge, they, they called me to Washington say said, dude, what do you think you're doing? Uh, you know, if you're going to say that, I mean, you know, you're in trouble, buddy. Here's and, the uh,
0: irony it, of this, Mr. Dwight, uh-huh. when, you know, cause I, look, we, when people call to do an interview, we do a little bit of research. We let you do the talking because uh-huh. that's why we're calling. We want to know, know about your experience. But the irony uh-huh. is if you look up your name, Ed Dwight, and you look up the, your activities in the space program, uh-huh. it's... The, a lot of what's written is about how racism that you felt from white people really kind of was the thing that, um, really kind of kind of pushed you into leaving.
3: Well, that was fake news,
0: as Donald said. Obviously, <laughs> and that's why I was like, "That's the irony of it." You're telling me that, and our people don't realize our people will do this. Yeah, yeah or people, yeah. we need to stop. But you know, let's from coming from a black nerd, from a blurred point of view, we have to keep it real. <laughs> this this right, is what right, happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, uh, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, you know, the the, the
3: only pushback I got uh, from, from from the white community, and and now that I'm as as old as I am, at the time I didn't understand it. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, uh,
3: at the time when was, uh, you know when President Kennedy. Uh, the well, the, first of all, you got to know why, why why I happened, and that's critical to this discussion. Uh, when, when when Senator Kennedy was running for office, he didn't know he didn't know any black people. But Harry Belafonte, that's how the story goes. He went to Harry Belafonte, supposedly. Uh, I wasn't there. This is how it was related to me, uh, and asked uh, to, uh, to help him get the black vote. And Harry Belafonte says, uh, I, I mean, I can only uh, bring you two people. I can two votes, me and my wife. But I'll hook you up with Dr. King and and A. Randolph and Roy Wilkins and all all the gang, uh, and we'll bring them together and 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 and, and you they're the ones that can bring you the vote. So they all met supposedly met, uh, and 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 Whitney Young, who ended up being one of my mentors and sponsors, uh, uh, he went on. Everybody got up and gave their spiel as to why uh, they, they what they needed for Kennedy to get the black vote and 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 um uh, um uh, 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 oh God damn. i mean, I haven't having a brain freeze here but but anyway, I mean, my sponsor guy went on last uh, mm-hmm. and he and he told Senator Kennedy, he said, you know we don't uh, uh you know we we don't need white colleges We're, what we what we've been trying to do uh is uh, is to get our black kids, and this he was head had the urban leg Whitney, I'm sorry Whitney Young of the urban leg." Uh, and he said we're having trouble getting our kids in white colleges, is what he said. Hmm. And and you know even if they got an A uh, average a GPA in high school, the white people considered that a C in a white school. You see, and so as a result they they were not accepting these uh, gifted kids from black schools. And so he told he told uh, Senator Kennedy he says we don't need white colleges. We got four military academies, and and you and I can fill them up with black kids, smart black kids all we got to get to get 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 an appointment for the house of representatives uh, to get into these academies i'll fill them up and so and the obvious question was how are you going to do this and, and and Whitney told us you make me a black astronaut and give him to me and wow. that's how it came that's how it came to be and that's and, amazing. and the, yeah we had 125 black pilots in the entire world at the time and 90 of them were Tuskegee Airmen, okay? But they did a deal where where you had to be under 30 uh-huh. with Tuskegee Airmen. You had to have an engineering degree or a degree in natural science. You had to have 1,500 hours of jet flying time. And the last thing you had to do if you were a military officer, the last three ratings that you get every year had to be rated outstanding. And I was 27, aeronautical engineering degree, 2,200 hours of jet time, right. I had four uh, ratings. Uh, My last four years was rated outstanding. So my card fell out. And so I was the the choice. I assumed there was going to be 10 or 20 black guys down there. But I got a letter asking me if I wanted to be an astronaut. I didn't volunteer for this. It was not on my bucket list. I was happy, happy, happy doing what I was doing. (laughs) When I got a letter November the 4th, 1961, asking me, if I wanted to be an astronaut. Wow. So, you know. <laughs> so uh, what do you do?
0: Right. Well, you don't pass that up. And uh, <laughs> right. was your father still around then? Because I know uh-huh? if, you, if your father was still around, then he was like, no, yeah. this is oh, what yeah. you're going to do.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, no, he was around. He, he stepped up to the front. Every picture <laughs> Every PR picture was it. My old man was right there in front. Oh. Uh, he pushed me to the pushed me to the back. He was like, uh-huh, <laughs> this is what I was telling you. <laughs> That's why I told you put the paintbrush down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful, actually. I really wow. And, and so and so now, but 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 what that promotes?
3: Because I came out of nowhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You see, so all the Tuskegee Gammon had never heard of me. Right. Who is this kid?
2: <laughs> Where did he world? come from?
3: <laughs> Where did this dude come from? Are you kidding me? Wow. And so yeah. I lost the support of the Tuskegee Airmen immediately. I mean, you know, I mean, I swear How to God, did we do that
0: to each other.
3: I, I mean, it was gone. I mean, to dude, you, you know, you,
0: you shouldn't have taken it. You should have said no. You should have pointed to one of us and said, "Take him." Y- okay. Yeah, <clears> or <throat> oh, whatever. You know, yeah. seriously. Seriously, uh, uh,
3: you know, uh, about two or three of the, of the Tuskegee Airmen came later on after the after the the massacre that occurred. Uh, two or three of these guys came in out of the rain and 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 we became kind of lifelong friends. But it, but but, but they took the time to figure out who the heck I was, uh, uh, and and everything that bad that happened to me in there, uh, uh, you know, uh, including General Bo Davis, said it's your fault. You shouldn't have gone in the first place. What? Okay. Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, uh, you know, you shouldn't have done it. Wow. You should have stayed where you were, and you shouldn't have done it. Uh, you know, and so I'm saying to myself, good grief, what in the world is going on here? Uh, uh, you know, and so it, it was that was an education and, and all that kind of stuff. But back to your other point about uh, all the news, when you know, all these white people that were against me, the only white people that were against me well, and and I can see it from their point of view now, uh, because this is 20 years. NASA was only three years old at that time. Okay, mm. NASA was formed in 1958. This is 1961 when this happened. Okay, okay. and so uh, and so they had made seven superheroes, that they, they, they just didn't wear a cape. The only, the only thing they didn't have was a cape to go along with it okay right and so and so and so NASA is fighting for their for their for their tax base
2: mm-hmm. and, you
3: know and so they and so you people didn't care if you sent missiles up in the air I mean the average person didn't care uh, who cares you know sending all these missiles up or into the moon everything. who cares mm-hmm. but you put a man in the cockpit of one of them things and it changes everything whole oh my dynamic. God.
0: Well, yeah, guys, changes. I mean
3: there, that guy ought to be. Oh, I wouldn't do it. That guy's got to be. He's got to be a hero, you know. And, and 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 so from from the from Congress's point of view, if you put a black in the middle of that or a woman in the middle of that, the the, the whole thing is that well, man, if a black and a woman can do it, anybody can do it.
2: Mm. So
3: these guys aren't heroes after all, and so that was what I was up against. Uh, and Congress knew this. And so Congress said no, they, and they called that answer, you know, we'll, we won't give you another dime if you put a black guy or black or a woman in in, in your program. There were 27 wow. women that applied after I was after I was chosen, and, and and they doubled down on those 27 women so that they would fail the test to get into the program. And wow. some of these women were exceptional pilots. I mean, engineers, engineering backgrounds, pilots, but they made those women do twice as much, many think twice as hard for them as he did with the men to get in the program. Wow. And they've all failed. All 27 of them failed until for 20 years later. So so it was 20 years from the time I was there almost to the day that I went in that the first black astronaut went into space. 20 years. 20 years. And yeah. and, and, and the same with the women. They started letting the women in, uh, you know, a little, a little, a little later, okay? And so, and so, and so, this is what it was all about. I realize that today, but at the time, I, obviously, I was, you know, I had my mouth stuck out about it. But, but, but the real deal it was, was that, but you know, Congress was struggling right. uh, with this, and and we had to live with the facts. And the facts were, this is America. And this is how America thinks, and all we got to do is look in the White House right now, and you can see uh, how America thinks. Uh, you know, because there, there, there are things that are rev. There are feelings in, in, in the white population that, we're, where, that there's a general feeling of, you know, way down deep inside that this country belongs to them and shouldn't belong to anybody else. Mm. And all these other people that can't coming around here, sniveling around the edges, trying to take their stuff. And I give, still give speeches, and I've tried to convince these white people that, you know what, there's 330 million people in the United States of America. We got 40,000, 44,000 black people. Mm -hmm. That's uh, 10% of the population. We don't have enough of us to go around to take anything
0: from 300 million people. Yeah. I mean, hello. It's just mathematically just not even viable. (laughs) (laughs) Lord. have mercy. (laughs) Hello. You know, if it was enough to go
3: around, if we had a couple hundred million of us, then you got a good argument. But, but, But to come up here and say that, you know, uh, 10% of the population is going to take over 90% of the job. Right. I mean, I mean it doesn't quite work that way.
0: <laughs> Not at all. I think one of the biggest takeaways from our interview with Ed Dwight was that the experience of what it's like to be, you know, a person of African descent, an African-American in the West is a little bit different from where it is everywhere. It's not a monolith. And um, the experience is different in Colorado in ways that he expounded upon. I thought it was just completely kind of awe-inspiring that he came to his art as a sculptor later in life and that he came to his knowledge of Black history later in life. So hopefully you all enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed doing it. You've heard me mention Denver as the mile high city often and I'm doing this because it is it actually got that moniker because the mile high marker a mile above sea level is actually on the 13th step of the Capitol building and the Colorado State Capitol building is a must see while in Colorado. It's physically buttressed by streets that commemorate the history of the state and the first 10 years of American settlement there. Um, Lincoln borders the western side of the Capitol building. Lincoln, of course, was the president, commander-in-chief at the time that the miners from Auraria, Georgia, uh, settled on the Platte River, establishing the first American uh, settlement and subsequent Colorado Gold Rush, uh, William Larimer and his Denver City Company arrived within days of their Arrians. Um, he was a military man, hence Lincoln Street is in front of the Capitol building because Lincoln was his commander-in-chief. Now, Colfax Avenue borders the south side of the Capitol and That avenue is named after former Indiana Congressman Shyler Colfax, and it's the longest street in America. Shyler Colfax was the first speaker of the House in Colorado for the Colorado House of Representatives. He's also supposed to have accompanied Lincoln to Ford's Theater on the night that Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. However, that was Colfax's lucky day because he was an ardent abolitionist as speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives at the time. And he was a huge proponent of the recently ratified 13th Amendment. He was a prime target for John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators. But that day, Colfax just didn't happen to be there. He had to leave town at the last minute. Irony of ironies. Now, 13th and 14th streets are on the northern border of the Capitol building. Colfax was instrumental in getting both the 13th and 14th Amendments passed. The 13th Amendment freed the slaves, and the 14th Amendment gave the newly freed and naturalized citizens rights as U.S. citizens. This is one of the actual reasons I'm a stickler for calling people before the 14th Amendment, either Negro or Black, because technically nobody was African-American that was here and of African descent until after the 14th Amendment was ratified. It's not historically correct to call people before then African-Americans. Just a little side note. So Grant Street is on the east side of the, the building, Colfax was vice president during U.S. Grant's presidency. Grant was the first president to, well, he was the president that actually ratified Colorado's statehood. Prior to Grant's administration, most of modern Colorado was a part of Kansas, and Kansas statehood was granted as a special thank you from Grant to all of the Colorado Union veterans who defended the Western Front in the Battle of Gloriata Pass. Now, this Union victory shut down Confederate efforts to mine metals for ammunition during the Civil War. So it really kind of slowed down the Western offensive of the war. And actually, if you go to the Colorado Capitol building, you'll see facing the Rocky Mountains just before you get to the, the 13th step that marks the mile. There's a large statue of a Civil War soldier. I actually took a picture of that for you all, and I'll put that on the website. That's one of the reasons why that soldier is standing there. Lastly, Sermon Street dead ends at the Capitol's north entrance. Sherman and Grant ultimately led the Union victory over the Confederacy during the Civil War. So the Colorado State Capitol in total is an enduring testament to the Union's triumphs over the Confederacy. The Colorado State Capitol is literally surrounded by history. Most of the statues on the Capitol's ground stand as a testament to the efforts of Union soldiers, miners, and Native Americans. Now the interior of the building is almost entirely comprised of Colorado Rose Onyx. So when you go, take a good look at it. I took a picture of it. You should touch it, smell it, do whatever that doesn't get you arrested. It's nice. It's really pretty. And enjoy it while it's it's there because that's all of it. They mined it all during the construction of the, the building, and there is no more. No one has found any veins of Colorado Rose Onyx since then. The dome is real gold, and Much of the state history that we've mentioned in our show is depicted on stained glass windows within the building. Also, if you look up in the rotunda, you'll see that there's just one Native American person that's on the stained glass up there, and it says Oure. There is a town that's named after Chief Oure, and what's interesting about it is that that is supposed to be the West's largest little Swiss town. It's kind of ironic. There's a lot more to say about Ure, but I thought I'd point that out. Um, Beneath the Capitol is home to another set of mysteries and interesting things. There are a network of tunnels which connect, among other things, the Capitol to the Historical Society, the Capitol to the Masonic Hall. And ironically, the first meeting, the first official meeting that was held in Denver was a Masonic meeting. So I guess they just wanted to keep that connection there. Um, It also goes to the Brown Palace and the Navarre Building, which is across the street. The Navarre Building was once a girls' school, which became a casino and a brothel. So all of those buildings are connected by this system of tunnels. There are way more tunnels. They also connected grocery stores and butcher shops. And the question is, well, why did they create them? You know, what was going on? And many people say that this was a great way to transport, you know, prostitutes and liquor during Prohibition or for high-profile Colorado men that worked either at the Capitol or at these environments around it to get to the Navarre building, which was, like I said, a brothel slash casino to visit, you know, women of um, interesting repute and working women. However, the truth may be a little bit more pedestrian than that. There are tracks that are beneath the building, and those tracks were used to guide mules under those buildings that had coal because the buildings were heated by coal. Um, also, in a kind of a gross way. Um, it's kind of gross to think about it, but the plumbing system for the the Capitol building, before we had our modern plumbing, a lot of it was, you know, gravity that made the waste leave and it would go into like ditches under the Capitol building. So think, OK, not so much clandestine places to um, meet for sexy time, so to speak, but but um, mule mule filled pecan field. Holy dark tunnels. Um, they also led to. There's a hospital that's in the area that connects it. The building, the Capitol building, was completed in 1894, and there was a guard that actually took residents under those ca- uh, those um, tunnels to guard them. And he lived his entire life there. He didn't leave. Um, he got paid weekly in silver silver dollars and he ended up dying there and nobody's been able to actually find his stash of silver dollars. Uh, Another interesting thing about that network of tunnels is that I don't know whether you all are familiar with Pancho Villa but the men of the Colorado National Guard were sent to fight Pancho Villa and I guess in order to prove their manliness whatever they decided to take two men's heads and send them back to the Colorado State House as souvenirs, trophies. They sunk these heads in big glass jars that they filled with alcohol and presented them to the the legislature. Well, of course, the legislature didn't know what to do with them. They were like, oh, thank you for these lovely heads. Hoo-ha. And they decided to pawn them off on the colorado historical society which was across the street well the historical society was like i we don't know what we're going to do with these heads we have no idea what we're going to do with these heads but we certainly can't put them on display up here so what did they do they took the heads they stored them in the under now like in a chamber that was off of the side of their part of the underground tunnel that connected them to this other network of tra- um, tunnels that's under the street that goes to the Capitol. And they were like, oh, we'll leave them there. And it's rumored that during prohibition, people remembered that, hey, aren't those heads down there? You know, and, and people actually supposedly drank the, the alcohol from around the heads. It's a little gross one way or another no one has seen those heads in years and years but yeah some interesting tunnel lore it is not the only city in Colorado that has a network of tunnels under it Trinidad which we've mentioned has a network of tunnels Durango also has a network of tunnels beneath it Um, there are tunnels under Red Rocks oh Fort Collins has tunnels underneath it. There are tunnels under the airport. No, not enough tunnels to make a shadow White House, which is one of the other rumors slash conspiracy theories. Before I go on, if you're interested in seeing those tunnels, they are not open to the public. However, you can get permission from one of the hospitals that's connected to it to see their tunnels Um, they're rumored to be very, very haunted. So if that's what you decide to do, they've been investigated by people and supposedly, you know, you've got to be very brave of heart um, to to venture below. Or uh, alternately, you can get permission from the Denver Sheriff's Department to go see it. So... If that's where your curiosity leads you, I suggest you do your research and get your official permission before you go stalking around looking for missing silver dollar loads. Just saying. Okay, going to go on further. Um, South Park. Is it a real place? Yes, it is. It's real and it's near Leadville out near uh, Colorado Springs. Leadville is actually where Hattie McDaniel was born. Casa Bonita, which is prominently featured in a South Park episode. Is it real? Yes, it is like the Mexican Chuck E. Cheese. It's a um, restaurant with cliff divers that, you know, dive off of rocks, and it is a real restaurant. and The food is, well, I wouldn't write home about it. I might not feed it to my dog, but the sofapias are awesome. Just saying. And it's worth the experience just to see it, I think, um, particularly if you've got kids. Colorado homegrown companies. We have Celestial Seasons, which Seasonings, which is a tea company based out of Boulder on Sleepy Time Drive. The first Chipotle ever is on the University of Denver campus at 1644 East Evans Avenue. Quiznos is a Colorado homegrown company. Red Robin, Einstein Brothers Bagels, Uh, if you use the app ibotta that is a colorado company samsonite all these are colorado-based businesses coors if you have picked up a can you'll notice that there are mountains prominently featured on that can and uh those mountains are in Colorado Springs. That is a Colorado Springs based business. In addition to being the home of Ron Stallworth, who is the cop at the center of Spike Lee's latest film, Black Klansmen. And if you haven't seen it, ooh, I would recommend you see it. It is very intriguing. It's it's kind of poignant. Um, no, there's no kind of it's poignant. It is shed some light on what blackness was in the 60s for the baby boomer generation you did have black activists and young people that were speaking out for what they wanted their future to be and their issues with the status quo back then in a place that most people didn't think that black people lived anyway So that is actually a little promotion, once again, not paid, but I would definitely go see it. Colorado Springs was also home to nerd hero, Nikola Tesla, and his Tesla experimental station, which he built in 1899. This was the location where he tested his first wireless transmitters of electricity, which were designed to give free electricity to everyone. And uh, that got shut down. It's also home to the world's largest Tesla coil. Um, Hattie McDaniel, Don Cheadle, Pam Greer, Sydney Sheldon, Larry Dunn, and Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind, and Fire, as well as Mamie Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower's wife, our former first lady, were all educated in Colorado's oldest high school, which is East High School at uh, 19th and Stout. Feel free to see some pictures of those on our website, Twitter feed. Those will go up in the next few weeks. It's modeled after Philadelphia's Independence Hall, which was designed by George Williamson, uh, who was a graduate of the class of 1893. Now, the building was um, added to the Denver Historic Register in 1991, and it is among five historic Denver schools, which are all done in a colonial revival style, which include North, South, East High School. There is a West, Manual High School, and George, which uh, Cleo Parker Robinson talked about being an alumna of. So there is lots to know about Colorado, but I can't possibly tell you more without talking your ears to death. And I'm sure after this um lengthy edition of Wandering Blurred, you are about ready to <laughs> to have me sign off. So this is Miki Just Miki, no more no less. I want to thank you for tuning in to this edition of Wandering Blurreds. I hope it makes up for time between our last uh, episode. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks go to our producer, head nerd in charge, Mr. Lance Solo, Lance John. We have a lot of people to thank for this episode. A very special thanks to Ed Dwight, Cleo Parker Robinson, and Patricia Smith, who worked tirelessly. For a little over a month to uh, coordinate the interview with Cleo. So thank you. Gifted Sounds Network recently celebrated our first anniversary at Brick Studios in Brooklyn in September. And we had a surprise visit from fellow podcast host and Colorado native Barry of Podcast of Color. If you haven't checked out her cast yet or her website, I highly suggest you do so. She has a massive repository of podcasts for and by people of color. We have to do what we can to support one another, and uh, it definitely is an interesting foray into the Blurtiverse. You can see the many shades of and listen to the many voices of the podcast Blurtiverse. It's definitely a fantastic resource. Um, Barry is a Denverite and a five-pointer, a woman on the go, and we will be looking forward to having her as a guest in the future, so stay tuned. I also, of course, want to encourage our listeners to listen to the other productions on the Gifted Sounds Network. I highly uh, recommend Made with Steam made by my former co-host, Miss Miki. I also am a big fan of The Defendant and Cheers and Queers. And Super Upper Punch also is pretty interesting if you are a fan of martial arts or MMA fighting. I'm not necessarily interested, but I did find that show to be pretty intriguing, which has to say something about the information that's presented there so I would definitely check it out if I were you so uh, once again thank you for joining us for this episode of Wandering Blurs. please join us next time when we wander to Detroit City yes this is Miki Tate signing off